Turn again your Bible to the reading for the message this morning. And again, it is in the ninth chapter of the book of Judges. And verses 1 through 6. And Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem. Shechem unto his mother's brethren and communed with them and with all the family of the house of his mother's father, saying, Speak, I pray you, in the ears of all the masters of Shechem. Whether it's better for you either that all the sons of Jerubbabel which are three score and ten persons, reign over you, or that one reign over you. Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's brethren spake of him in the ears of all the masters of Shechem, all these words, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, he is our brother. And they gave him three score and ten pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Berith, wherewith Abimelech hired vain and light persons which followed him. And he went on to his father's house at Oprah, and slew his brethren, the sons of Jerubbabel, being threescore and ten persons upon one stone. Notwithstanding, yet Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left, for he hid himself. And all the men of Shechem gathered together, and all the house of Milo, and went and made Abimelech king. By the plain of the pillar that was at Shechem. Or in the best translation, by the oak of the garrison. Turn with me, if you will, please, again, in your hymn book, to number 486, 486, stand with me, please, and we sing together. Wretches yet alive, and do we yet rebel? Tis boundless, tis amazing love that bears us up from hell. The burden of our weighty guilt. Would 
sink us down to flames and threatening terror roll above to crush our feeble frames. Almighty goodness cries for bear and strength the thunder stays. And dare we now provoke his grip and weary out his grace. Lord, we have long abused thy love, too long indulged our sin. Our aching hearts now bleed to see what rebels we have been. No more ye lust shall ye command, no more will we obey. Stretch out, O oh God, thy conquering hand, and drive thy foes away. Thank you. Be seated. We had begun on last week to finish our study of this particular section, Judges 9, verses 1 through 6. And I had pointed out to the fact that as we study expositionally through this book or any other book, no portion of the sacred scripture, no portion, of the sacred scripture is given solely for the purpose of a historical record, nor is it given for entertainment. But rather, I am always seeking, and I hope that you are in your private study, always seeking to know what it is that the Lord is saying to us in the text. What are the lessons to be had to our hearts from the scriptures? I said to you that I would like to entertain from this record. It is an historical record. And I would like to entertain to our hearts several considerations. The way I expressed it. I said that I would show to you several considerations in this text, considerations in the science of understanding the diseases of the fallen human heart. Surely this text is full of instruction to one who would desire to understand better the disease of the fallen human heart. 
In the pursuit of that purpose I started on last week, spent the entirety of the time that I had remaining for my message in giving you that first consideration. We considered from this text that evil of subtlety. We saw it twofold. We saw the subtlety of a tongue that is used to deceive and to stir up its hearers. We saw that in Abimelech's use of that title, Jerubbabel, the destroyer of Baal. What a subtle use of language. And what a ploy that is often so effective among vain and light persons. So we see it every day in the news in our own country. Subtlety seen in the use of a deceitful and malicious tongue. And then we saw him using subtlety in his turning to his family, making an appeal to those that he knew would be vulnerable, subterfuge by false insinuation. Subtlety. And I hope to show to you in that there a clear, a classification of a characteristic of the fallen human heart. Subtlety. Now this morning I'd set before you from this history of Abimelech in verses one through six a second consideration in our design to learn the diseases of the human heart. I set before you a second consideration, the danger of work left undone. The danger of work left undone. When we read verse 1, And Abimelech the son of Jerubbabel went to Shechem, unto his mother's brethren and communed with them and with all the family of the house of his mother's father. Who are these people? Who are these people? Who are his mother's brethren? Fawcett says they are members of the original Canaanite population. Those who were, were to have been exterminated long ago and that by God's direct command. Can I just use another Bible figure 
and preach it to our hearts again using this figure. The smallest vestige of leprosy that's left in the house will soon enough be in the walls and in the floor and all in the house will die. Leviticus chapter 14 verse 39 through 45 was very clear. Any vestige of the leprosy left in the house will soon fill the walls and the floors and all inside the house will die. And so that when we come to this first verse of chapter 9, we find Abimelech going to these people of her, his mother's house and his mother's father. And we answer the question, who are these people? These are the remains of those that should have been exterminated long ago, but the work was left undone. The work was left undone. And Leviticus 14, 39 tells us, The priest shall come again the seventh day and shall look, and behold, if the plague be spread in the walls of the house, then the priest shall command that they take away the stones in which the plague is. They shall cast them into an unclean place without the city, and he shall cause the house to be scraped within round about, and they shall pour out the dust that they scrape off without the city into an unclean place. And they shall take other stones and put them in the place of those stones, and he shall take other mortar and shall plaster the house. And if the plague come again and break out in the house, after that he hath taken away the stones, and after he has scraped the house, and after he has plastered it. Then the priest shall come and look, and behold, if the plague be spread in the house, it is a fretting leprosy in the house, it's unclean, and he shall break down the house, and the stones of it, and the timber thereof, and all the mortar of the house, and he shall carry them forth out of the city into an unclean place. The clay and all that pertains to the house must be torn down. Everything must go. But the work had been left undone. And I give you this consideration in knowing the heart, the disease of the human heart, the work cannot be left undone. That picture in Leviticus 14, tear it down, tear it down, tear it down, was nothing but an Old Testament picture of that spiritual work that's done in our lives and in the New Testament. The work of purging, the work of purging may never be allowed to cease until all of God's enemies are carried out and that will in the latter end, that will dictate and necessitate that this old body, this very clay in which I inhabit must be torn down and destroyed. The house must be torn down. Second Corinthians 
chapter 5, for we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked, dissolved. There's the word dissolved. This clay, this clay, it's going to need to be dissolved. And as God carries out this work of purging, of cleansing, of destroying the leprosy, eventually he'll take down this house to purge it out. Take down this house. Oh, but until that day, how often do we stop at the business of cleansing? At the business of purging? How often we stop at some favorite vice? Or we just frankly tire of the labor of destroying? We just get tired of it. This work of sanctification, it's a tiring work. Sometimes we leave some Canaanite concubine whom we have come to embrace, whose offspring would, if it could, destroy Gideon's legitimate sons. I said sometimes we leave some Canaanite concubine that we've come to embrace whose offspring would if it could destroy Gideon's legitimate sons. The work was not finished. The work was not finished. I give you that consideration. But now again, in connection with this last lesson, this last consideration, allow me to point you to yet another related consideration from our text. First, look at chapter 8 and verse 30 and 31 again. Gideon had three score and ten sons of his body begotten, for he had many wives. And his concubine that was in Shechem, she also bare him a son whose name he called Abimelech. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 9 again. And Abimelech the son of Jerubbabel went to Shechem unto his mother's brethren and with all the family of the house of his mother's father. I give to you this consideration. That a desecrated doctrine of marriage begets moral degeneracy that will eventually threaten to undermine even the stability and order of the very society where it moves. I'm going to say it again. 
a desecrated doctrine of marriage begets moral degeneracy that will eventually, in a culture, threaten to undermine even the stability and order of the very society where it breeds. Fawcett said that Abimelech's bloody act of, at Shechem, Abimelech's bloody act at Shechem was the precursor of the extermination of dynasty after dynasty in the kingdom of Israel and it all started with Gideon's disregard for God's order in his own personal life in marriage. It all started with Abimelech's, or with Gideon's disregard for God's order in his personal life of marriage. One commentator said the parentage of Abimelech would stir in him a sense of injustice and incline him to lawless conduct. Loose morals undermine the peace of society. Did you hear that? That was written more than a hundred years ago. Loose morals undermine the peace of society. Whatever desecrates the sanctity of the home tends to denigrate the order of the state. The high-sounding name of Abimelech. You remember I said his name. Most interpreters settle on it saying, meaning, my father the king. And this commentator said the high-sounding name of Abimelech is significant as an index to the character of his mother and the thoughts she would instill in his mind. The vanity of the parent may be the curse of the child and it always will be when the law of God has been despised. Gideon ignored God's law concerning marriage. And it resulted in this horrible tragedy. Yet another commentator had this to say. He said, compare similar wholesale murders of the 70 sons of Ahab by the order of Jehu in 2 Kings chapter 10. Consider the seed royal of Judah murdered by uh, Athaliah in 2 Kings chapter 11, of the whole house of Jeroboam by Baishan, Baishan in 1 Kings chapter 15, of the whole house of Baishan by Zimri in 1 Kings 16. Timur on his conquest of Persia is said to have destroyed the whole male family of the king. At the conquest of Baghdad, it's said to have made a pyramid of 90,000 human heads. In Persia and Turkey in modern times, it's been a common practice of the sovereign to slay or put out the eyes of all of his brothers and cousins. So destructive of natural affection is polygamy. 
And so cruel is power warm because of a dismissal of the vows of marriage. Marriage vows discarded. I'm trying to bring this characteristic, this this consideration to your heart that the desecrated doctrine of marriage begets moral degeneracy. And that will eventually threaten to undermine even the stability and order of the society in which it brings. Moral degeneracy. This is a cancer that has eaten the very heart out of our nation and stripped our churches bare of any fruit. This is the disease that chokes the life out of our devotions, maims and mutilates our churches. And it's not just in the world. It's not just in the pews of our churches. May God help us. It's rampant in our pulpits. And God has written Ichabod over our doors in America's churches. And the glory has parted, departed. I could name you things and I won't go into personal. I could name you names right now, people that I've talked to this week. Churches, pastors, church members, deacons that are living in bold and open violation of God's laws for marriage. Bimelech. Bimelech. Let that name echo in your heart. Bimelech. Went to his mother's people. Because his father had cast off God's laws for marriage. If you will, tarry with me yet a while. And I'll show you another consideration from this text to assist us in the biblical diagnosis of the human condition. Fourthly, I give you the tragedy of a misguided and ruthless youthful ambition. The tragedy of misguided and ruthless youthful ambition. Oh, how clear it's seen here in this young man Abimelech. Said Bush, the transaction shows what indeed has been shown in a thousand similar instances that ruthless ambition never hesitates. That neither conscience nor affection, neither the love of God nor the fear of man restrains those who in youth are under its baneful influence. Misguided, youthful ambition. Said another commentator, Abimelech displays some of the worst features of ambition. Selfishness. 
The ambitious upstart has no thought of his nation's prosperity. His sole aim is his own aggrandizement. Deceit. Abimelech deceives his brothers and the men of Shechem. True greatness is simple and frank. The bastard greatness of ambition is mean, false, and treacherous. Selfishness, deceit, cruelty. The new king soon abuses the confidence of his brethren and develops into a murderous tyrant. Ambition inclines one to cruelty because it isolates the ambitious man and destroys the safeguard of the sympathy and influence of equals and because it creates dangers from which there seems to be no escape but violence. Ruthless. I said ruthless, misguided, youthful ambition. Oh, how many a young man has sabotaged his own life and the lives of many around him by an unrestrained exaltation to a status too lofty either for his intellect or his maturity. Lifted up by men, men whose foolish hearts were inclined, verse 3, toward him, charmed by his own zeal and crafty words, in verse 2, they hitched their wagon, as it were, to a shooting star and later were repaid by tragedy, his demise. Foolish, youthful, ruthless, Ambition. Many as a young man has been exalted too soon. And the result was failure. How wisely did Matthew Henry say, It does not appear that any of them had an eye to him as a man of merit who had anything to recommend him to such a choice, but the motion came first from himself. <laughs> None would have dreamed of making such a one a king if he had not dreamed of it himself. And see here. See here how he wheedled them into the choice driven by nothing but the power of his own self-exalting ambition. I'm afraid, brother John, in most of our Baptist churches, in most of the Baptist circles, that's exactly how most men have landed up in the ministry. They set themselves forward. And like unthinking men, inclined it toward them. Now may I say to you that zeal, zeal with godliness is glorious. I mean not to disparage zeal. Even in youth, zeal with godliness is glorious. 
in a young man, in a young girl, zeal with godliness is glorious, but ruthless, self-exalting ambition is a poison too lethal for words. Dear Timothy, dear, dear, dear Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. He tells us, Timothy, guard your youth. With self-aggrandizement always comes presumption. Abimelech exalts himself king over all of Shechem. King over all Shechem. And no doubt he's intending to be king over all Israel. If not, why kill all those brothers who would never have challenged his reign over sheep? One commentator said, what a strange presumption for one tribe to make over all others. What unbridled arrogance. Indeed. I would give you a sidelight to this consideration, if you will. Abimelech, don't miss this. It is a sidelight, but don't miss this. Abimelech, in his youthful pride, left off fellowship with his father's household. Now remember. Gideon was as much his father as were all the other 70 men. But, but Abimelech left off fellowship with his father's household. And with those that were closest to his father, and took up with his idolatrous mother. Whoa, listen to me, children. Children, beware of this danger. The inclination of the unregenerate heart is to side with the parent most partial to your evil inclinations. The inclination of the unregenerate heart in children, in offspring, is to take up with the parent that is most partial to your evil inclinations. Mothers, don't fail in this. I remember in my own household, though it's been long ago, I remember well. When one of my little fellows decided he could break the law and run to their mother, she'd bounce him right back. Say, no, you're going to have to. You're going to have to take up your father with this. Mothers don't fail in that. You send them back to the father. Or whichever parent. Is holding the line for godliness. Children, don't fail in this. 
God will not reward it. You'll see later in the history what came of this. But now quickly, notice with me one other consideration. Consideration number five from this text. The money to finance this appalling tragedy came from the coffers of religion. The money to finance this appalling tragedy came from the coffers of religion. Verse 4, And they gave him three score and ten pieces of silver out of the house. Baal period. The money for this tragedy came from the coffers of religion. Matthew Poole said, those who were very parsimonious and base in their expenses for God's service were evidently liberal indeed in their contributions to idols. Fawcett said, idolatry is un, unnatural, uh, idolatry, sorry, idolatry and unnatural bloodshed always goes together. And we can always find funds aplenty for the things that please our vanity. Ooh, that hose of corn close to the stone. parsimonious in the expenses for God's service. But we can always find funds aplenty for our own vanity. Oh! <laughs> Is this not the point that was made by the prophet Haggai in chapter 1 Verse 2, thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, the people say, the time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. And then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet saying, is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses and this house lie waste? Consider your ways, said the prophet. Funds are plenty. For what I want. Consider this from this text. But now I must close with this final consideration of our chapter. Number six, consider God's overruling providence. Hallelujah. God's overruling providence. We'll read it later. We'll read of what comes to those who took part in this vile travesty. To say the least, they were rewarded amply for their efforts. God sees, said Bush, the treasure deposited in this temple Verse 4, which had perhaps been raised from the oblations to the idol 
and thus consecrated to idolatrous uses, uses is made through divine counsels the instrument of bringing upon the idolaters their deserved punishment by embroiling them in a civil war that caused their ruin. Nothing, says Bush, nothing is more common in the providence of God than for the revenues of sin to be made a plague and a curse to those who have amassed them. To put it in New Testament terminology, Galatians 6, 7, be not deceived, God is not mocked. That whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. God's overruling providence. Oh, when they gave him those 70 coins, they purchased their own destruction. God will triumph. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 24. Because I have called and ye have refused. I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded. But ye have said it not all my counsel and would none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity and I will mock when your fear comes. When your fear cometh as desolation and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early. They shall not find me. <laughs> oh, his overruling providence. His overruling providence. Hymn writer said, Blessed Isaac Watts said, The Lord Jehovah reigns. His throne is built on high. The garments he assumes are light and majesty. His glory shine with beams so bright no mortal eye can bear the sight. The thunders of his hand keep the wide world in awe. His wrath and justice stand to guard his holy law. And where his love resolves to bless, his truth confirms and seals the grace. Through all his mighty works, amazing wisdom shines, confounds the powers of hell, and breaks their dark designs. Strong is his arm and shall fulfill his great decrees and sovereign law. Hallelujah. I'm here to tell you from this text that we haven't gotten to it, but we will get to it. I'm here to tell you that there's an overruling providence. Oh, be assured this morning, be assured that every Haman the devil finances will hang on the gallows prepared for God's mark. Hallelujah. God's overruling providence. I give you that consideration from this text. May God help these considerations to take seed in our hearts. Turn with me if you will, please. 
Stand with me again. We sing number 490. Return, my roving heart, return. Life's pain, shadows chase no more. Seek out some solitude to mourn. Thy forsaken God implore. Stand with me, number 490. Return my roving heart, return, and life's pain shadows chase no more. Seek out some solitude and thy forsaken God implore. O thou great God, whose piercing eye distinctly marks each deep retreat in the sequestered hours draw nigh, and let me hear thy presence meet. Through all the windings of my heart, my search let heavenly wisdom guide, and still its radiant beams impart, till all be known and purified. Then let the visits of thy love my inmost soul be made to share till every grace combined to prove that God has fixed his 